Hi, Highlands Ranch. I'm excited to introduce your speaker today. None other than your own campus pastor, Bob Oldfield. Bob has a tremendous message I know you're going to love. He's one of my favorite people in the world. Put your hands together and welcome Pastor Bob up to the pulpit. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. I thought last night was a good, enthusiastic crowd, but you guys, thank you. Uh, that's, I'm humbled to be able to be up here, so thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Wow, that's echoey. It sounds great. Hello. It's great for thus saith the Lord. But anyway, hey, welcome, everybody. I'm so glad that you're here and that you came to join us. Did everybody have a good Christmas? Good one? How many are happy that we had Christmas? It was great, but you're happy it's in the rearview mirror. It was, it was a great time, especially around here. I tell you, we had, we had four services on Christmas Eve. How many people joined us for the DTC services? A lot of us. It was great. If you didn't, you guys missed something. It gets better every single year. Not only did we have great crowds, and Pastor John just had an amazing message that he brought, but I thought that the worship and the video and the, the AV that went along with that, the presentation of it was just, it was professional quality. It was amazing. I was proud to call JFC my church just watching that production and watching how that Christmas Eve started. I was so blessed by that. And JJ, if you're back there, you had a huge part in that. Thank you, man. Thank you for guest leading for us this weekend. Also at the, we call it the midnight service, but 11 p.m. How many people were at the 11 p.m. here? It was, it was a great time. I felt the Spirit of the Lord in this building like I don't know that I have in quite a while. And I feel like He shows up every weekend, but it was heavy. And it was such an amazing time to just soak in what He had for us. For all of you volunteers, you know who you are. I had several couples, uh, eight different couples that helped me usher and put out chairs and, and serve communion and hand out candles and all that stuff. And guys, I just want to thank you because without you and without your help, it could not have come off like it did. And like I said, I know I was blessed. We packed nearly 400 people into this sanctuary. And uh, if you can't guess, right now there's probably 150, 175. So double this and then some. And that's how many people we had in here. It was a great time. If you missed it, I would love to have you join us next year. You have to wait a whole year, but we'll do it again next year. And I would love to have you here. So... Um, Again, thank you to everybody, and I am happy it's in the rearview mirror because it was a long day, but, but very well worth it, and so I'm glad that you joined us. Before I get going in the message, I just want to, first of all, thank you for not making my nightmare come true. Every time I get to preach, it was only a couple times a year, two, three times a year, I always post on Facebook that I'm going to preach, and I ask for responses or answers, and then the night before, I always have these nightmares that I come and no one's here. So I want to thank you guys for actually showing up and, and showing me that that's the enemy speaking to me. That's, that's not from God. So thank you. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> but I would like to open up in prayer and that just uh, God would use me to deliver the word that I feel like he gave me. So would you join me in that? Father God, I thank you so much, Lord. First of all, for the people and the hearts that came here today eager to hear a word from you. I will be the vessel that delivers it, but God, the word is from you, Lord, and I just pray that you use me to deliver it and that I would speak these words of truth the way that you would have it done and that they would fall on receptive ears, receptive hearts. God, and ultimately, I pray that lives would be changed and people would be drawn 
closer to you through this. Father, I love you. I praise you in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Amen. All right. Hey, as we go into 2013, most people look at the new year. 2013, okay, it's a start, or 2014. 2014, start of a new year, and most people mark that on their calendars as, okay, when 2014 hits, when the new year hits, now I'm going to do all these things. Now things are going to be different. Now I'm going to do all those things I wanted to do. How many people know God doesn't have a calendar? Okay, he's not looking and going, you know, as soon as 2014 hits, then I'm going to bless them. As soon as 2014 hits, I'm going to give them the courage to go out and do those things that they want to do. But we all look at the upcoming year in a different way. Some of us see it as a year full of opportunities. You know, this is the year that I'm going to take that trip that I've always wanted to take. This is the year that I'm going to take that class that I've always wanted to take. This is the year I'm going to get healthy. Sometimes it's new commitments. We make commitments to each other. We make commitments to ourselves. We make commitments to God. This is the year I'm going to get closer to you, God. This is the year I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. Sometimes it's something as simple as the beginning of a tax year. It's the beginning of a tax year. And on that note, don't forget, if you want your tithes and offerings to count for this year, do you like how I swerved that in? If it wouldn't have been for the laughter, I probably would have slipped that in. Nobody would have noticed. But hey, if you want your tithes and offerings to count for 2013. They need to be in the church office by midnight on the 31st. Any of our four campuses, you can drop it off. You just slip it through the door and it will count for this year. But this would be a good weekend since you're here to go ahead and just take care of that now. But I want to get that out of the way so that I don't forget. Pastor Dan is now happy that I did not forget to say that. (laughs) But I can tell you that this, for me personally and for Gabe and I, This has been a crazy year. It's been a year so full of uncertainty, a year so full of having to rely on God to get us through and to take us where we're going. We've got four kids. One kid, one daughter, kids, left the nest a couple years ago. She's in college up in Wyoming. She is doing wonderfully. We are so blessed by that. Our youngest Still at home, still with us, but our two boys, two middle boys this last year, left the nest and went out into the world. One is in the Navy, he's a nuclear engineer, which still blows my mind to have your child. Really? You? I remember you eating crayons. But he's not here, so I can say that. (laughs) The other one is in college for uh, computer animation, graphic design, and I couldn't be more proud. But even along with that, so that's a good thing. But as a parent, there's always that moment of going, are they going to fly? Are they going to fly or are they going to return back to the nest? And thank God, they, they are both flying and, and they're soaring. They're, they're doing wonderfully. But there's always that uncertainty. There's been other uncertainty around here. How about the economy? The economy affects everyone. It affects us here at the church. And when it affects you, it affects us. Ties and offerings, our construction delay, people that have been going here for a while know that we plan to have our construction done late in the summer of last year, of this year, and budget and construction delays have caused that to be delayed until hopefully, God willing, early in this coming year we'll get that all done, but that has some uncertainty and some stress that goes along with it. It's all good things, we're pushing forward, we're doing construction, we're sending kids out into the world, we're doing all these things but it's still full of uncertainty. And I think as humans, 
we are not really fond of uncertainty. So, <clears throat> has this year been full of uncertainty for you? I would imagine that it has. Maybe not the exact same things that we're dealing with here, but everybody has their own thing. In fact, Yahoo, the online search engine, actually did a poll. They do a poll every year, and it changes year to year, but they did a poll this year of the top 10 worries, the common worries, the top 10 uncertainties that people deal with. And here's their list of top 10 in, in reverse order from 10 down to one. Number 10, the decline of society. Okay, I can't tell you how many times I watch a TV show. I'm not naming particular shows, but you can honey boo boo, things like that. You watch those shows and you go, really? Is this what our society is coming to? That? So I worry about those things. I imagine you do too. How about death, number nine? Christians and non-Christians alike worry about death. Just because as a Christian, we understand, or hopefully we understand, that our end is secure. Our salvation is secure. We're going to heaven. We know what the end looks like. But there's still uncertainty. And nobody is thrilled to die. We're, we're uncertain. We're, we're, uh, we worry about that. Number eight, relationships or marriage. Common, common worry. Number seven, personal appearance or specifically your weight. I would imagine if I were to say, raise your hand if you don't ever worry about your weight. There'd probably be three or four of us in here. Everyone else would probably worry about that. Very common. Uh, number six, the economy. I'm surprised, frankly, that it's only number six. Number five, your job or employment or, or lack thereof. This has been a year of many more people than typical coming to, coming to the church either for counseling or for help or, or strictly just prayer that, they're, that they would get a job or maybe they're underemployed and they can't make ends meet and they need a better job. How about number four, responsibilities of family and children. I talked about it with my kids. Even though it's a great thing sending them out, there's always, how much is this going to cost me? Are they going to go? Have I given them everything that they need? Even if your kids aren't leaving the nest yet, am I equipping them the way that I should? Am I giving them what they need to know to go out and thrive in this world? Number three, debt and bills. Very common, enough said there. Number two, health. I should say health insurance, but it just says health. <laughs> it just says health. The number one, number one common worry, this is, this is Christians, non-Christians alike, overall the board, Yahoo users, the future. What the future holds for them. Very common. There's probably, even if you know Christ, and even if you know his word for us, and his heart for us, you still wonder what tomorrow holds. And there's a fine line between wondering what tomorrow holds and being worried about it being uncertain about it. That is a lot of uncertainty. In fact, Benjamin Franklin, many of you remember the quote, but you might not know who said it. Benjamin Franklin said, there's nothing sure in this life except death and taxes, right? That's Benjamin Franklin. There's a lot more that's sure in this life as Christians that we can count on, but that's, that's a good quote, I think. Now, uncertainty, the word uncertain is used several times in the Bible, but what it means, actually, the Greek root of the word uncertainty is adelos. And what adelos means is without purposeful aim. Without purposeful aim. And I think so much of our uncertainty, so much of our fear of the future comes from the fact that we don't take the time 
to find out where we're going. Okay, we might know our end game. We might know when it's all over. Our place in heaven is secure. But we've never taken the time to even pray about it or even ask God, where are you taking me, God? Is where I am right now, is that where you want me? Is this what you have for me? Or do you have something different? Sometimes we don't even take the time to ask. And a lot of uncertainty can come from that. Fortunately, though, in the mind of God, there is no uncertainty. God has known since before the time you were a twinkle in your mother and father's eye. Since before the time you were conceived, he knew that you were coming. He knew what his plan and his purpose for you was. His plan and his purpose that only you can fulfill. No one else can step in and fill that slot that he had for you in his kingdom. But he's known that. There's two scriptures. Jeremiah 29, 11. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, I use that scripture all the time because it's one of my favorite. Our God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the ruler of all of the galaxies, knew you, has a plan for you. He's not somewhere else doing something else more important. And every now and then when you pray, he goes, oh, yeah. Let me check in on Bob and see how things are going. He's got a plan for you, always has, and he's watching over you. He's with you every minute of every day. He's not somewhere else. He's with us now. The second one, Psalm 139.16, says, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How cool is that? Why then, if we're Christians and we call on Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, why would we have one moment of uncertainty about what the future held for us? It's simply because we don't check in and find out what he's got for us. Our job as humans, we want to know why. We want to see the picture. We want to see the puzzle. We want to see how things go together and go, okay, I see how A fits into B, B fits into C, and I see the ultimate picture. Be kind of like building a puzzle without looking at the box. Okay, you dump out all the pieces and you just start building. Who does that? Okay, a couple do that. A couple do that. My nephew actually does that. Um, but most of us, we want to look at that picture. Okay, I see how this piece fits into that. But our job is not to do that. Our job is simply to trust in him. Trust in God that he has a plan for us and all these things that happen to us fit into that plan. Whether they're things that he designed to bless us that we can't see how it blesses us, maybe losing that job is actually a blessing in disguise. Maybe it's something bad happened to you that the enemy actually had a hand in. But God takes that thing and twists it and uses it for our good. But our job and what gives us peace or what should give us peace is knowing that he's at work. He is constantly at work, 24-7. He is never off taking those things and turning them for our good. He has promised us that. We have to trust in him. How many people, how many people know who the late Bob Ross is? 
Okay, a painter, painter, Bob Ross, artist, Afro guy. Okay, he had the most soothing voice. Happy little clouds. He would talk so calmly. I'm going to put a happy little cloud in this meadow. And I would find myself on a Saturday morning glued to PBS, watching that far longer than I should have, watching him paint happy little clouds. But I remember, there is a point to this story. <laughs> Believe it or not. And eventually I'll get there. Yeah, my soothing voice is putting people to sleep. Maybe you need to crank the volume a little bit. No. Um, I remember one time clearly watching Bob Ross do a painting. Okay, He had this canvas laid out in front of him, and I'm watching him do it. And I didn't watch it from the beginning. I actually tuned in, and he was just finishing uh, this scene. He had this beautiful mountain range. Okay, nice the trees and everything. Just a beautiful range. Had a little creek running through a meadow, and the meadow had little flowers in it. And it was beautiful. And I turned on as he was just putting some finishing touches on the creek. And I thought, that is awesome. I would buy that painting right now. It spoke to me, a nice, peaceful mountain meadow. I could picture myself laying in that meadow. And I'm like, that is the perfect painting. If I could buy that right now, I would do it. Where's my credit card? No. But then he reaches down into his little toolkit and he grabs this paintbrush, big, wide, four-inch paintbrush like you'd use for your house. Okay, he's been using these little fine brushes. And he grabs that, and he slathers it around in white paint and goes right in the middle of this painting. Like, you just ruined it. What are you doing? And then I sit and watch, and he grabs another little paintbrush, and he starts dragging out the white, and he starts moving it around. He grabs this little putty knife thing, and he's kind of scraping it out. And before I know it, this painting that I thought was perfect now has these wonderful snow-capped mountains on it. And I'm like, now, now it's perfect. Now it's even better than I thought it was. I would buy that painting instead. I love that painting. And I go, you're done. Step away from the canvas, Bob Ross. <laughs> but then he reaches down and he grabs another big old paintbrush, slathers it in green, and smacks that right smack in the middle of the meadow. I'm like, what are you doing? It was perfect. So then he does the same thing, dragging out the paint. He's manipulating. He's adding little dabs of color here and there. And before I know it, there is this beautiful, majestic pine tree right in the middle of this meadow. And when he did that, I went, oh, man. That just something in my heart went, that is perfect. I can picture myself laying under that tree in that meadow with the cool air coming off the mountains. It just, I, now it's perfect. Okay, so why do I tell you that? Because several points along the way, I thought it was perfect. I would have stopped him. If it was up to me, I would have stopped him when he just had the mountains done. The mind of a master looks ahead. He had the picture in his mind before he even put the first brush on that canvas. He had a picture in his mind of what this looked like. And even though it looked great at several points along the way, he knew what the end game was. He knew what it was going to be. He saw it in his head. And if Bob Ross, a human artist, in his human weaknesses, God-given gifts, but human weaknesses can look that far ahead, how much do you think our God in heaven can look at all the pieces of our lives and see the end game? And we look at things that happen to us. We look at, man, my life was perfect, and then I lost my job. 
My life was perfect, and then I lost my girlfriend. My life was perfect, and then I got a divorce. God looks at those things, and he says, trust me. Trust me. This is going to work out for you. I see what the end looks like, and you're going to love it. Trust me. We have to trust in him because he and he alone knows what the end looks like. So it's so easy to say trust in him, trust in God, he knows. But if you're going through that stuff right now, we have to train ourselves to be able to trust in him. It's not something you can just say, well, if I was a better Christian, I would be able to trust in him when I see these things. It's not like that. We have to train ourselves to be able to see that God does have a plan, and how do we do that? So a couple weeks ago, Pastor Terry taught, and he made the comment, he said, preachers like bullet points. And so, in that tradition, I have three bullet points for you. Point number one, look back. Look back at the things that God has done in your life. Look back at God's track record of being faithful to you, of taking those things that didn't seem to make sense and turning them around for your good. Those things that made absolutely no sense to you, and all of a sudden, two weeks later, three weeks later, you can look back and go, I'm so glad that happened, because now, whatever that thing is, we have to train ourselves to do that. I actually posted on Facebook a few days ago, um, basically the question was, what are ways that God has blessed you in your life? What are some ways that God has come through for you against all odds, when it didn't look like there was any possible way that this was going to work out, how did God come through for you? And I got some great responses. I got responses like, I looked at my finances, and there was no way that I was going to be able to make my bills. I'd gone through some changes in my life, some things that happened, and I was looking at my bills saying, there is no way this is going to work out for me. And then I sat down with my checkbook to pay my bills, and somehow or another it worked. I have no idea how it worked, but it did. I had another person posting that relationships, job opportunities, came out of nowhere, things that she would never have been able to orchestrate on her own. She didn't have contacts and didn't know people, but God did, and God knew what she needed. And he created those things in her life to bless her. So it's great we do that, but I think we should all if I asked you all that question, could you all come up with immediately a way that God has blessed you, that the supernatural has occurred in your life? I would bet a lot of us could, but there are probably a lot of us who can't. And why is that? When those things happen in our life that are so wonderful, when you're going through it, you're saying, this is, God is so good. Thank you, Lord, for being with me. I will never again forget your greatness and your faithfulness. And then the next time we're faced with something, we're, God, where are you? What happened? God, I thought I was on your path. I thought I was close to you. I thought I was doing the right thing. Why did this happen? Where are you, God? I don't think we forget simply because we have a bad memory. Some of us do. I do. But I think mainly it's because we have an enemy. John 10.10 says the enemy comes only to steal and kill and destroy the enemy wants to take those things that God has done for you, those promises that he's fulfilled in your life, those gifts that he's given you, those miracles that have happened in your life, 
and he wants to steal them from you. Now, if he can just steal it from you and make you forget it ever happened, that's great. But sometimes what he does is he lets you think that you're the one responsible. Okay, I got that great job, that job I had been praying for, that I put out resumes all over town, and I interviewed and I interviewed, and I went out and I bought that new suit, and I brushed up and I watched some YouTube videos on interview skills, and I went out and I nailed it, and I got that job. The enemy is more than happy to let you think that was your doing. Now, you played a part in it, no doubt, but every good and perfect gift comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. There's nothing that we can do in our own strength. We can be a part of it. I'm not saying don't go out and prepare. I'm not saying don't go out and don't do your part and your diligence. But God's going to come through for us. We need to recognize that it's God's goodness that creates those things in our lives. So how do we go about remembering those things? If the enemy wants to steal them away from us, how do we do it? Well, here's the Old Testament method. 1 Samuel 7, verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone. This is, this is celebrating in celebration of Samuel's victory over the Philistines. Okay? Samuel had just had an amazing victory over the Philistines that there's no way that they could have beat this army, and yet they did. And they recognized that it was through God's goodness and God being with them. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Now that word there, Ebenezer, it's actually Ebenhazer. We've pronounced it Ebenezer. Uh, in, those, in Strong's, it translates that as stone of the help. Stone of the help, or also a commemorative stone. So they would build these little piles of stone, not a, not a temple, not a monument, but they would build these piles of stone to remember the victories that God had given them, the good things that God had done in their life. The Bible is full of instances where people have done that, mostly Old Testament where they've gone through. Here are a few. Genesis 28, 18. Jacob is dreaming at Bethel, and God renews his covenant with Jacob. Jacob builds a builds a pile of stones to commemorate that. Genesis 31:45, Jacob again makes a covenant with Laban and actually builds a pile of stones, and they call it a witness pile. A pile of stones that just, when they both see it, they'll remember their covenant with each other. Joshua 4, 20, 21, Joshua piled up 12 stones where the Israelites were able to cross the Jordan River on dry ground piled up stones on the bank there to, to commemorate that. Genesis 22, okay, Isaac sacrificing or preparing to sacrifice uh, Abraham, preparing to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain. He actually names that mountain Jehovah-Jireh, which means God will provide. Later on, Exodus 17, this is um, Joshua fighting the Amalekites. And Moses would hold up his arms, and every time Moses held his arms up, Joshua would start pressing forward and start beating the Amalekites. Then when he would put his arms down, he'd get tired of holding his arms up. He'd put them down. The Amalekites would start pushing up. So Aaron and Hur actually came up alongside Moses and held his arms up, just held him up long enough so that he wouldn't get tired. And as he did that, 
Then they were able to push the Amalekite army back. They built a pile of stones to commemorate that. There are many and many more. In fact, that pile of stones, they called it Jehovah Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. They did it so they wouldn't forget. So when they saw those faced with trials, faced with armies that were twice the size of theirs, overwhelming odds, they could look at that and say, God was with us then. God is with us now. We need to be able to say that. But aren't we glad that now we have different ways to commemorate those victories in our life? I don't know about you, but I live in Highlands Ranch, and if I were to build piles of stone in my yard to commemorate all the things that God has done for me, I'd probably get a letter from the association saying, uh, I can't do that. Plus, it would be messy. Piles of stones everywhere. We'd have cars crashing into them. It wouldn't be a good thing. Might be the opposite of a, of a good thing. Um, but we don't have to do that. We have a couple different ways. Number one, the Holy Spirit in us is going to remind us of those victories. But all we have to do is take time to listen. Okay? He's not going to walk up to you with a sign and go, hello, remember? We have to ask. So when we're faced with those overwhelming odds, turn to God and pray. Lord, you were with me before. I trust that you're with me now. Another way we can do it, a great way that we can do it, is journal. Just get a journal. Now, I'm not good at journaling. I'm not going to sit up here and tell you I journal all the time. I wish that I did. I, I very much want to journal more. But you write down those victories that God has in your life. Every single day, I promise you, there are things that you could look at. If your eyes are open to see, you could see God did that for me. God blessed me in this way. Okay? It may not be the miraculous. He parted the Red Sea, gave you victory over an army. What about that presentation that you give at work, that you nail it? Thank God for that. Recognize where those things come from. A weekend like this, when I'm done preaching here, I promise I will go home and thank God for, being able to, for giving me the opportunity to speak this word to you. Look at those things, those victories that we have. Give God the credit. Journal them. And at the end of the year, if you only did one a week, one thing a week, I, I guarantee there are hundreds if you just did one, at the end of the year, you'd have over 50 different times where God blessed you. God spoke to you and you saw the outcome. And it was God. That way, when you have those times that you're faced with overwhelming odds, like these armies, you don't have to look for the pile of rocks and go, oh yeah, that's the pile we built when we, built, when we beat the Amalekites. You look at your journal. God, last time my bank account didn't look like it would make all my bills, you made something come through for me. I see that. And this other time, just two weeks ago, when I was faced with car repairs, I didn't know how I could pay for them. You sent someone to me. God, you are so good, and it will help us to see God's goodness in our life at a time when we need it. When the enemy's trying to steal that from you, you grab your journal and you look and you can say, God was good to me here and here and here, and he'll be good to me today. Number two, bullet point number two, look around. Look around your life, things that are going on right now. There's a lot of shaking going on right now. There's a lot of pruning going on right now. We don't have to ignore it and pretend like it's not happening. But we do have to know that God has a plan for that too. 
And he's going to get us through it. In Hebrews 12, 26, 27, this is referring back to when Moses was at Mount Sinai when the Jew, as the Jews were fleeing Egypt. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. What remains after the shaking? The kingdom of God is what remains. Created things, those things we've built in our lives, that can all be shaken away. What God has created, which is a kingdom for us, and he has placed us as heirs to that kingdom, cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 goes on to say, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The kingdom that cannot be shaken is what we have received. The other thing that God can do in your life is prune. I know there's been a lot of pruning that's been going on in my life and probably in yours. But in that even, we have hope. In John 15, verse 2, it says, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that even more, so that it can be even more fruitful. A branch that's bearing fruit, and he'll prune it, so that you can be more fruitful. So what's blossoming in your life because of the pruning? Again, you look at something that's doing good in your life. I look at, at Gabe and I, for example. A year ago, do you have a tissue? A year ago, our life was wonderful. I had just been promoted to campus pastor here, and Gabe had a wonderful job. She was making twice what I was making, a little more than twice at the time. Things were going very well. And then God spoke. God spoke to Gabe and said, I want you to set aside your job, set aside your career, that she had just gone to college and finished her degree in project management. I want you to set all that aside and go on to the church full time with your husband. And she was faithful to that. Now, how many of you know there's a lot of pruning that goes on when you lose two-thirds of your income? Okay, suddenly those things that we thought were really important, NFL football package. Uh, <laughs> and maybe I shouldn't go there. I don't want to step on any toes. Some of those things that we thought were critical in our lives. If I lose this, I don't know how I can go on. Suddenly, because God called us to do that, and gave us the grace and provided a way, we are blessed beyond belief. Our marriage is in a place that I never would have guessed. A year ago, I would have told you I have the best marriage of anyone that I know. But now, it is in a place that I can't fathom. Our kids, our children are blessed because we can spend more time with them. I feel that this campus is blessed 
if you have any of the cookies or snacks that my wife makes every weekend, then you too have been blessed by that decision. <laughs> I was cheap pandering for applause for my wife. <laughs> but in your life, when you turn it over to God and you make those decisions, God blesses you. God will make things bloom in your life that you never could have seen. I never could have looked back at that situation and seen. It was, it was uncertainty. It was fear. God, I know you've called us to this, but I don't know what this is going to look like. And it looks better than I could ever have imagined. And he will do that for you when you're faithful to what you hear. Sometimes, though, there are still things in the dark that are scary. Sometimes we don't see even a glimpse of what the future looks like. Sometimes we pray to God and say, God, can you, can you at least give me a hint of how you're going to bless me through this? Can you, can you show me what my job situation is going to look like? Sometimes he'll do that, but other times he doesn't. And you're left in the middle of a trial. You're left in the middle of a storm in the darkness going, I just have to trust. I just have just have to have faith that he's going to pull me through this because I can't see a thing. I can't see anything how this is going to work out. In the natural, in my flesh, there is nothing I can do to get me through this, and that can be scary. And we allow the spirit of fear then to come into our lives when we trust on our ability to do things. When we say, if I can't do it, I don't know how it's going to happen. We invite that spirit of fear in. One of the best things that I do at this church is I'm a part of our deliverance ministry here. And time after time after time, the most common spirit that people are delivered of is the spirit of fear. The spirit of fear that rules over their lives and they filter everything they do through this spirit of fear. I know that God has told me that things are going to work out for me, but I don't see it. And I remember that one time where such and such happened. Or I know a friend and this same thing happened to them and this is what happened to them. Folks, that is the spirit of fear at work in your life. And God does not give us the spirit of fear. He gives us the spirit of victory and of power. But you have to choose. The last thing we say in the deliverance ministry, when we have identified the spirit of fear, we have called it out, we have canceled its assignment, and we have replaced its lies with the truth of God. And people are standing tall and they're firm and they know God's truth for their life and they have cast off the yoke of fear and they are ready to boldly walk out. The last thing I say is you have to make a choice to not partner with the Spirit again. Because you can walk out of that office, walk out of the room, go out and the very first time you're confronted with something, you can partner right back with that spirit of fear and let it right back into your life. And then again, you're seeing things through that filter. That is not what God wants. But we have to make a conscious choice to not partner with that. That part is up to us. God will show us the lie. God will give us his truth. And it's up to us what we're going to choose to live by. So how then do we learn that? Again, how do we learn it? Well, I would refer you back to point number one, 
looking over those things. But here's another scripture that I found. I love this one. This is Psalm 77, verses 8 through 12. Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Again and again, God reminds us, go back and look at what I've done for you. Go back and look at my faithfulness. Look back at where I have been in your life. By looking back, we can walk boldly forward, no matter what the situation looks like around us. Which leads me to my third point, looking ahead. So in this new year, again, the new year, God doesn't have a calendar, but we do. So when the calendar turns over at midnight, we're going to be looking forward at what our resolutions are. What have we decided that we're going to do this year? How is this coming year going to be different than last year? I want to ask you, though, are you making room for God's plan in the upcoming year? Or are your resolutions simply things that you want? Okay, sometimes the things that you want, I want to lose weight. I want to get healthy. I want to get my finances in order. I want to make more friends. I want to get into the word more often. All those things are good things. There's nobody that's going to look at you and say, hey, that's a bad idea. You shouldn't do that. It's all good stuff. But is it what God had for you? Because if we try to do those things, as good as they might sound, we try to do them in our own strength and in our own flesh, we're going to fail. I can't tell you how many times I went into January 1st going, I'm going to lose 20 pounds by summer. (laughs) It was just my flesh. God has never told me that. And I struggle every time. And sometimes I do, but then it comes right back. It's because I didn't go to God and say, What do you want for me? Take that time and go to him because I can promise you his plan, his resolution for what he's going to bless you with this coming year is so much better than you could even fathom. You could not get your mind around what he wants to bless you with this year. And so many times we set our sights low. But God has so much greater. He's got the master's eye, he looks at our life and he sees what he wants for us in the year. We're going to settle for just the meadow and the mountain behind it. And he goes, this is so much better than that. Ask me and I'll help you get there. One thing that we need to do in order to get there is we need to exchange our mindset. Exchange our mind, how we think for the mind of Christ. Now, Getting the mind of Christ is not a matter of taking another class or of reading a book or of even praying, give me the mind of Christ. Now, what's the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ is a mind of obedience to God's will. Christ himself said, I never do anything but what the Father tells me and what I see him do. He had a mind. He is the Son of God. And he had a mind to only do 
what the Father had for him. That's what we should do. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, for we have the mind of Christ. It doesn't say strive for it, learn for it, practice it, see if you can find it. It says we have it. We have that mind of obedience. The way to engage that mind of obedience is through prayer and to ask for it. Obedience to what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you is going to give you more blessing and more gifts and more opportunities than we could possibly fathom. So what are you hoping for? Let me ask you. In this coming year, what are you hoping for? Now let me, before you answer that question, biblically, the word hope isn't what we use it as today. Okay? Some of us are saying, I hope the Broncos win tonight. Right? This afternoon. Some of us are saying, I hope they make it to the Super Bowl. Some of us are saying, I hope I can make my bills this month. I hope I get over this sickness. That is not what the Bible means. When the Bible uses the word hope, it's an expectation of God moving in your life. So when it says we have this hope in Christ, it means we have this expectation of the promises that he has given us in his word. We have an assurance of those promises that they're going to happen. It's not just a pie-in-the-sky dream. It's an expectation of those things to happen. So as an individual, let me ask again, what are you hoping for? Let me ask this. Have you even stopped to ask, God, what do you have for me? Because that's how we know what to pray for. God shows you he's got something new for you this year. Pray for that. God, make that happen in me. Ask him. Sometimes we don't ask. I can tell you that every time we have a missionary in here from Africa or from wherever they are, when we're praying at the end, I'll pray, but I'm not like, God, if you have missions for me, show me. I don't pray that because I don't want to hear that he wants me in Africa. <laughs> I joke about that, but it's true. Sometimes we just go on with our life because that's what we've always done. We pray to God, but we pray things for, for health and happiness and, and a good life and health for our kids and keep our kids safe. We pray for things like that. How many of us come right out and say, God, give me direction. Show me what you have for me, and I will follow there. Do we even ask that? Probably not as much as we should. As a church, I can tell you what we're praying for as a church Pastor John has said it. What we are praying for is an open heaven. We are praying for heaven to come to earth. Or more specifically, here's the definition of an open heaven. An unhindered experience of heaven on earth. An overwhelming increase of the supernatural invading the natural. What would life look like if the supernatural in your life was more common than the natural? What would our days look like if it was more miracles and supernatural works of God than things we were doing? Guys, that's when heaven comes to earth. When our things, the things we do in the flesh, that's what stands out as unusual. And we get to see God working in us and around us and each other 
every minute of every day when the supernatural comes to earth and outweighs and overwhelms the natural in our lives. That's open heaven, and that's what I'm praying for. So as I close this, looking back, looking around, and looking forward. You might say, okay, I I see the value in those things, but I don't necessarily have to do them all the time. I'll just do them every now and then. Whenever I think about it, I'll look back at God's goodness and take stock of where I am and then see where he where he wants me, see what he's got for me. You can't do it just every now and then. It can't be an emergency thing on the wall, break glass in case of, you know, do that when, whenever times are tough and there's an emergency going on. Then I'll remember these things and I'll pray. You have to do them all the time. David, king of Israel, God's anointed leader, okay, blessed beyond belief by God. He saw the need for doing these things. In Psalm 40, Psalm 40 shows in one verse, in, in one psalm, how David did these things and how he saw the value. Here's David looking back. Psalm 40, verses one through three. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. That's David realizing where he had come from and the things that he has gone through and praising God for taking him through it. Verses 11 through 12. This is David looking around. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head, and my heart fails within me. Now, looking ahead with obedience and expectation, here's verses 13 through 17. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, The Lord is great, but as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. If we did nothing more than pray every morning, God, you are my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. He will be faithful. He will do his part. So as I ask the worship team to come on up, i got a couple closing thoughts for you here. Like David, we need to make sure that we do these things, that we take these three steps back, around, and forward every day. It can't be a once-in-a-while thing because the enemy gets a foothold. And once he's in there, it's hard to shake. You need to understand God's faithfulness and look at those things that he's done for you every day. These are practical ways. By doing this in a world that looks uncertain, when things are out of control around you, you can be that one who's the calm in the storm. You can be that one who's thriving when things around you look like there's no way that could happen. 
So looking ahead, here's what I'm praying for, an open heaven. I want the supernatural in my life to overwhelm the natural. And if that's what you want in your life, heaven on earth, would you join me in this prayer? Father God, we want more of you. We want you to be the Lord of our lives. We want you to be the one who shows us what step to take. Father, we want to decrease so that you can increase in our lives. We want you to guide our steps, God. Because through that, we will have peace and we will have comfort that every step we take, every turn we make, God, is in your will. And that's where we want to be. Lord, there's no place we'd rather be than in your will. You have always been good to us. Lord, in times when we are struggling, in times when we are fighting the spirit of fear, God, we just pray that you rush in and remind us of your greatness and your goodness and the things that you have done for us, the battles you have brought us through, the victories that you've given us, the blessings that you have given us. God, you have been scandalously good to us. Father, we love you and we praise you and we want more of you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Hey, so as we go into this time of response, don't just do things because we've always done them. Think about what you're doing and why you're doing it. We have the crosses. We have note cards. You can go to either one of these crosses. Take those fears, those things that you're holding on to, those things that, that the enemy is ruling in your life and keeping you from stepping into what God has for you. Those places where you don't see God's victory, you don't see any way how you could possibly pull through this. Write it down and lay it at the foot of the cross. Pinning those prayers to the cross is a symbolic way of laying them at the foot of the cross. We are supposed to lay our cares at the foot of the cross because we don't know how to deal with them. We were never intended to carry those things around with us. Jesus died for us so that he could take them from us, give them over to him. We have the candles. Maybe there's darkness in your life. There's that place of uncertainty. There's that place where you can't see a way out. You can't, not only can you not see the light of the tunnel, you can't see the tunnel for all the fog in the way. Light a candle. God, shine light on this. Give me light so that I can see your plans, your purposes. We have communion at the crosses with juice. And up front on both sides here, we'll be serving wine and the bread. You just dip the bread in the wine. Don't do that out of habit. Don't do it because now is communion time. Do this in remembrance of him and what he has done for us to give us victory. Because it's through him that we have victory over everything that we face. Take this time and respond to God's goodness.